This is a reading of the Catechism of the Catholic Church as promulgated by Pope John Paul II. Chapter 2. God Comes to Meet Man, Paragraph 50. By natural reason, man can know God with certainty on the basis of his works. But there is another order of knowledge which man cannot possibly arrive at by his own powers, the order of divine revelation. Through an utterly free decision, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. This he does by revealing the mystery, his plan of loving goodness, formed, formed from all eternity in Christ for the benefit of all men. God has fully revealed this plan by sending us his beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Article 1. The Revelation of God God reveals his plan of loving goodness. Paragraph 51. It pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make himself known and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ, the Word made flesh, in the Holy Spirit, and thus become sharers in the divine nature. 52. God, who dwells in unapproachable light, wants to communicate his own divine life to the men he freely created in order to adopt them as his sons and his only begotten son. By revealing himself, God wishes to make them capable of responding to him and of knowing him and of loving him far beyond their own natural capacity. 53. The divine plan of revelation is fully realized, is realized simultaneously by deeds and words which are intrinsically bound up with each other and shed light on each other. It involves a specific divine pedagogy. God communicates himself to man gradually. He prepares him to welcome by stages the supernatural revelation that is to culminate in the person and mission of the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. St. Irenaeus of Lyons repeatedly speaks of this divine pedagogy using the image of God and man becoming accustomed to one another. The word of God dwelt in man and became the son of man in order to accustom man to perceive God and to accustom God to dwell in man according to the Father's pleasure. The Stages of Revelation In the beginning God makes himself known. 54. God who creates and converses all things by his word provides men with constant evidence of himself in created realities. And furthermore, wishing to open up the way to heavenly salvation, he manifested himself to our first parents from the very beginning. He invited them to intimate communion with himself and clothed them with resplendent grace and justice. 55. This revelation was not broken off by our first parents' sin. After the fall, God buoyed them up with the hope of salvation by promising redemption, and he never ceased to show his solicitude for the human race. For he wishes to give eternal life to those who, we seek, who seek salvation by patience and well-doing. Even when he disobeyed you and lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the power of death. Again and again you offered a covenant to man. The Covenant with Noah 56 After the unity of the human race was shattered by sin, at once sought to save humanity part by part. The covenant with Noah after the flood gives expression to the principle of the divine economy toward the nations. In other words, 
toward men grouped in their lands, each with his own language, by their families in their nations. 57. The state of division into many nations is at once cosmic, social, and religious. It is intended to limit the pride of fallen humanity. United only in this perverse ambition to forge its own unity as at Babel. But because of sin, both polyism and the idolatry of the nation and of its rulers constantly threaten this provisional economy with the perversion of paganism. 58. The covenant with Noah remains in force during the times of the Gentiles until the universal proclamation of the gospel. The Bible venerates several great figures among the Gentiles. Abel the Just, the king-priest Melchizedek, a figure of Christ, and the upright Noah, Daniel, and Job. Scripture thus expresses the heights of sanctity that can be reached by those who live according to the covenant of Noah, waiting for Christ to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. God chooses Abraham. 59. In order to gather together scattered humanity, God calls Abram from his country, his kindred, and his father's house, and makes him Abraham, that is, the father of a multitude of nations. In you all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. 60. The people descended from Abraham would be the trustees of the promise made to the patriarchs, the chosen people, called to prepare for that day when God would gather all his children into the unity of the church. They would be the root onto which the Gentiles would be grafted once they came to believe. 61. The, paragraph, the part, patriarchs, prophets, and certain other Old Testament figures have been and always will be honored as saints in all the church's liturgical traditions. God forms his people Israel. 62. After the patriarchs, God formed Israel as his people by freeing them from slavery in Egypt. He established with them the covenant of Mount Sinai, and through Moses gave them his law so that they would be recognized, so they would recognize him and serve him as the one living and true God, the provident father and just judge, and so that they would look for the promised Savior. 63. Israel is the priestly people of God, called by the name of the Lord, and the first to hear the word of God, the people of elder, and brother, elder brethren, in the faith of Abraham. 64. Through the prophets, God forms his people in the hope of salvation, in the expectation of a new and everlasting covenant, intended for all to be written on their hearts. The prophets proclaim a radical redemption of the people of God, purification from all their infidelities, a salvation which will, which will include all the nations. Above all, the poor and humble of the Lord will bear this hope. Such holy women as Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Miriam, Deborah, Hannah, Judith, and Esther keep alive the hope of Israel's salvation. The purest figure among them is Mary. Christ Jesus, mediator and fullness of all revelation. God has said everything in his word. 65. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Christ, the Son of God, made man, is the Father's one perfect and unsurpassable word. In him he has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. St. John of the Cross, among others, commented strikingly on Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 2. In giving us his Son, his only word, for he possesses no other, he spoke everything to us at once in, his, in this sole word. 
and he has no more to say, because what he spoke before to the prophets and parts, he has now spoken all at once by giving us the all who is his son. All person questioning any person questioning God or desiring some vision or revelation would be guilty not only of foolish behavior, but also of offending him by not fixing his eyes entirely upon Christ and by living with the desire for some other novelty. There will be no further revelation. 66. The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away, and no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance over the course of the centuries. 67. Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by in a certain period or history. Guided by the magisterium of the church, the census fidelium knows how to discern and welcome in these revelations whatever constitutes an authentic call of Christ of his, or of his saints to the church. Christian, help, Christian faith cannot accept revelations that claim to surpass or correct the revelation of which Christ is the fulfillment, as is the case in certain non-Christian religions and also in certain religious recent sects which base themselves on such revelations. In brief, 68. By love, God has revealed himself and given himself to man. He has thus provided the definitive, superabundant answer to the questions that man asks himself about the meaning and purpose of his life. 69. God has revealed himself to man by gradually communicating his own mystery in deeds and words. 70. Beyond the witness to himself that God gives in created things, he manifested himself to our first parents, spoke to them and after the fall, promised them salvation, and offered them his covenant. 71. God made an everlasting covenant with Noah and with all living beings. It will remain in force as long as the world lasts. 72. God chose Abraham and made a covenant with him and his descendants. By the covenant, God formed his people and revealed his law to them through Moses. Through the prophets, he prepared them to accept the salvation destined for all humanity. 73. God has revealed himself fully by sending his own Son, in whom he has established his covenant forever. The Son, of, the Son is his Father's definitive word, so that there will be no further revelation after him. Article 2. The Transmission of Divine Revelation. 74. God desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, that is, of Christ Jesus. Christ must be proclaimed to all nations and individuals so that this revelation may reach to the ends of the earth. God graciously arranged that the things he had once revealed for the salvation of all peoples should remain in their entirety throughout the ages and be transmitted to all generations. The Apostolic Tradition, 75. Christ the Lord, in whom the entire revelation of the Most High is summed up, commanded the apostles to preach the gospel which he had been promised beforehand by the prophets, which had been promised beforehand by the prophets, and which he fulfilled in his own person and promulgated with his own lips. In preaching the gospel, 
They were to communicate the gifts of God to all men. This gospel was to be the source of all saving truth and moral discipline. In the apostolic preaching, 76. In keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel was handed on in two ways. Orally, by the apostles who handed on, by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life or in his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit, in writing, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. Continued in Apostolic Succession, 77. In order that the full and living gospel might always be preserved in the church, the apostles left bishops as their successors. They gave them their own position of teaching authority. Indeed, the apostolic preaching, which is expressed in a special way in the inspired books, was to be preserved in a continuous line of succession until the end of time. 78. This living transmission, accomplished in the Holy Spirit, is called tradition, since it is distinct from sacred scripture, though closely connected to it. Through tradition, the church in her doctrine, life, and worship perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. The sayings of the Holy Fathers are a witness to the life-giving presence in this tradition, showing how its riches are poured out in the practice and life of the church, in her belief and her prayer. 79. The Father's self-communication made through his word in the Holy Spirit remains present and active in the church. God, who spoke in the past, continues to converse with the spouse of his beloved Son, and the Holy Spirit, through whom the living voice of the gospel rings out in the church, through her in the world, leads believers to the full truth, and makes the word of Christ dwell in them in all its richness. The Relationship Between Tradition and Sacred Scripture One Common Source 80. Sacred Tradition and Sacred Scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own, always to the close of the age. Two distinct modes of transmission. 81. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits its entirety, the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may fully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. 82. As a result, the church to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the holy scriptures alone both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence apostolic tradition and ecclesial traditions 83 the tradition here in question comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from jesus teaching an example in what they learned from the Holy Spirit. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written New Testament, and the New Testament itself demonstrates the process of living tradition. 
Tradition is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms adapted to different places and times in which the great tradition is expressed. In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. The Interpretation of the Heritage of Faith The heritage of faith entrusted to the whole of the church. 84. The apostles entrusted the sacred deposit of faith, the deposit depositium fidei, contained in sacred scripture and tradition, to the whole of the church. By adhering to this heritage, the entire holy people, united its pastors, remains always faithful to the teaching of the apostles, to the brotherhood, to the breaking of the bread and the prayers, so maintaining, practicing, and professing the faith that has been handed on, there should be a remarkable harmony between the bishops and the faithful. The Magisterium of the Church, 85. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether it is written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the Church alone. Its authority... And its, ma- its authority in this matter is exercised in the, same, in the name of Jesus Christ. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. 86. Yet this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but it is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it at the divine command and with the help of the Holy Spirit. It listens to this devoutly, guards it with this dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief has been divinely revealed. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. 87. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, He who hears you hears me. The faithful receive the docility with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. The Dogmas of the Faith 88. The Church's Magisterium exercises the authority it holds from Christ to the fullest extent when it defines dogmas, that is, when it proposes in a form of obligating the Christian people to an irrevocable adherence of faith. Truths contain a divine revelation or also when it proposes, in a definitive way, truths having a necessary connection with these. 89. There is an organic connection between our spiritual life and the dogmas. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. They illuminate it and make it secure. Conversely, if our life is upright, our intellect and heart will be open to welcome the light shed by the dogmas of faith. 90. The mutual connections between dogmas and their coherence can be found in the whole of revelation of the mystery of Christ. In Catholic doctrine, there exists an order of hierarchy of truths, since they vary in their relation to the foundation of Christian faith. The Supernatural Sense of Faith, 91. All the faithful share an understanding and handing on revealed truth. They have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit who instructs them and guides them into all truth. 92. The whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the supernatural appreciation of faith, census fidei. On the whole, 
on the part of the whole people when, from the bishops to the last of the faithful, they manifest a universal consent in matters of faith and morals. 93. By this appreciation of the faith, aroused and sustained by the spirit of truth, the people of God, guided by the sacred teaching authority, receives the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. The people unfailingly adhere to this faith, penetrates it more deeply with right judgment, and applies it more fully in daily life. Growth in Understanding the Faith 94. Thanks to the assistance of the Holy Spirit, the understanding of both the realities and of the words of the heritage of faith is able to grow in the life of the Church. Through the contemplation and study of believers who ponder these things in their hearts, it is in particular theological research which deepens knowledge of revealed truth. From the intimate sense of spiritual realities which believers experience, the sacred scriptures grow with one who reads them. From the preaching of those who have received, along with their right of succession in the episcopate, the sure charism of truth. 95. It is clear, therefore, that in the supremely wise arrangement of God, sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the magisterium of the church are so connected and associated that one of them cannot stand without the others, working together each in its own way, under the action of the one Holy Spirit, they all contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. In brief, 96. What Christ, when, what Christ entrusted to the apostles, they in turn handed on by their preaching and writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to all generations, until Christ returns in glory. 97. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture make up a single sacred deposit of the word of God, in which, as in a mirror, the pilgrim church contemplates God, the source of all her riches. 98. The church, in her doctrine, life, and worship, perpetuates and transmits to every generation all that she herself is, all that she believes. 99. Thanks to its supernatural sense of faith, the people of God as a whole never ceases to welcome, to penetrate more deeply, and to live more fully from the gift of divine revelation. 100. The task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is, to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him.